0: It's time for the December birthday shoutouts. I have so many episodes coming out this month, I could probably do a birthday shoutout per episode, but I'm going to do all of them all at once. So I want to thank those who support me over on Patreon during their birthday month. And this is our list for December. I want to say happy birthday to Noelle, Patrick, Suzanne, Mary, Jack, Monica, Jen, Mary, Virginia, Carolyn, Jill, Eva, Allie, RG, Jean, Allison, CN, Shashi, Brittany, Natalie, Liz, Heather, Ashley, and Sharky. I hope everyone has a great birthday month. I hope nobody tries to get you some combo Christmas birthday present. I hope you get celebrated even in the hustle and bustle of this season. So happy birthday, everyone. <laughs> Beverly Robotham packed up her life in Saskatchewan and moved with her husband for his new job in Manitoba. While the move was stressful, their home on two acres in a quiet town seemed ideal. That was until Beverly left one night and never came home. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. Welcome for the first time. If you're new here, I appreciate you hitting play on this episode. We are about to kick off our 12 Days of Crime Lines starting on Thursday, December 9th. I will be releasing 12 daily episodes they are shorter than our usual weekly episodes, and it's giving me a chance to cover some smaller cases that you've sent in or I found on my own that I'm interested in covering, but they may not have enough for my usual length of a Crime Lines episode. It is like a podcast advent calendar, and they will lead up to the week of Christmas to our regular release on December 20th, and that will be a full-length episode, just like an Advent calendar would be. But we still have a few days before that kicks off, so this is just a regular episode. And I want to thank Christy from Canadian True Crime for introducing me to this case and encouraging me to cover it and also providing me with some sources. She covered it herself on her show, and she thought it would be a good fit for Crime Lines. Our episodes are a bit different in our approach, as always, so I do encourage you to go listen to her presentation of the case on Canadian true crime if you want to hear a little bit different of a take on it. Being that it came from Christy, yes, we are doing a Canadian case. The main sources for this were court documents, the Winnipeg Free Press, CTV Manitoba, CBC Manitoba, and Global News. All credits are linked in the episode description. Let's get started. Beverly Robotham was born in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, which is along the Trans-Canada Highway, about three hours west of Regina. Beverly spent her younger years in the area, but she was a pretty adventurous person, the type of person who liked skydiving, can't relate, and so she did spend some time teaching in Japan and just living a very... Exciting and adventurous life, and then she settled into a successful career in the Saskatchewan Public Service Commission. She worked in human resources. In 1991, Beverly was living in Regina when she met her future husband, Mark Stobie. Two years later, they got married, and they went on to have two sons. They did have the usual ups and downs of a marriage, nothing dramatic, but they did seek marriage counseling pretty early on to smooth over some of those rough edges in their relationship. People described them as very close with each other, very affectionate. Mark was a communications expert, and he worked with the New Democratic Party in Saskatchewan, which is one of the main larger political parties in Canada. In 1999, Mark developed a strategy that helped the party win the provincial election. This positioned Mark to get a job as the senior communications advisor to the premier of Saskatchewan. Mark rode this career wave to a prime job offer to work in a similarly high-profile position for the premier of Manitoba, which is the neighboring province, Taking this job would require the family to move six hours away to the Winnipeg area. The family decided to go ahead and go for it. Not only was the job worth the move, but Beverly had family who lived out that way. So it would be nice to be near them, particularly as the boys were young. So Mark and Beverly, both 42 at the time, and their boys, ages three and five, packed up and moved to St. Andrews, Manitoba in late spring 2000. St. Andrews is a rural municipality just north of Winnipeg with a population of around 11,000. It looks like an idyllic place to raise children, except that that spring and summer were not the greatest. It was first super rainy, which kept Beverly and the kids inside instead of enjoying the outdoors, particularly exploring their new two-acre property. And then, after the rains, all that standing water had another consequence, and that is mosquitoes. Apparently, this is not an uncommon issue in southern Manitoba the Winnipeg Free Press website has an entire section called Mosquito Watch with news about the mosquito situation. Mosquitoes lay eggs in or near standing water and a lot of southern Manitoba is flat prairie with clay subsoil. This means that water isn't fully absorbed into the ground, lots of puddles sticking around, which means lots of mosquitoes breeding. When there is a particularly wet spring, the mosquito population explodes and they were everywhere. You couldn't be outside long without getting eaten up. While West Nile virus hadn't made it to Manitoba in the spring of 2000, we were aware in 1999 that it was spreading quickly across North America. So at the time, it was a concern. So first the rain and then the mosquitoes left Beverly and two little boys cooped up in their new house. It was a bit lonely because Beverly was new to the area and she did have her family there, but with everyone staying inside, she didn't have the usual venues you would go to to make other parent friends. Beverly was a very outgoing person and she really didn't have an outlet for that in Manitoba when they first got there. They had a beautiful large log home, so they did have space for the kids to get their energy out, even inside. But being in the house was also a reminder of some of the issues they had with it. The mosquitoes were keeping them in the house, and the house had a carpenter ant infestation. Those can be hard to treat. And then they had other little annoying things to fix, but they did have big things like foundation problems. Foundation issues can lead to annoyances, like your door's not shutting all the way or they'll get stuck in the frame, but it's actually a lot more than an annoyance. We've had to have our foundation repaired, which involved peering, and that's very expensive. It turned us from loving our home to worrying that we were turning into that couple from the movie Money Pit. I know other homeowners probably can relate to the situation, and while Beverly was home dealing with all of that, Mark was dealing with a 50-minute commute each way and long work hours. He would leave around 6 a.m. and many nights not be home until after the kids were in bed, so Beverly had long days to fill. Her family noticed that Beverly was more stressed than usual, and she even straight-out expressed That when she would vent. A few months after moving to Manitoba, so this would have been the late summer, Beverly talked with one of her sisters about the whole situation. She admitted that she was not coping well because there were all these problems with the house. She was dealing with them largely on her own without Mark's help since he was at work all the time. And Beverly approached Mark with the idea of selling the house and finding something that just worked out better for them but Mark wanted to stay and fix the house they had bought. But since Beverly was bearing the brunt of it day in and day out, you can understand why she was frustrated and feeling stuck. But after this very long summer for Beverly, things did start to lighten a bit in September. The big repairs on the house were done, so a lot of that stress was alleviated. Their oldest son started school, which gave Beverly a space to make friends while she was also looking for a job. And thankfully, the mosquito season was over, so they got to spend more time outside exploring and getting to do fun things. As for her job prospects, the Manitoba Justice Department was hiring for a human resources position, which was similar to the job Beverly had in Regina. Beverly applied for it, and she was called in to interview for October 25th, 2000. The night before the interview, Beverly talked to her sister Betty on the phone while she was giving the boys a bath and getting them ready for bed. Beverly was distracted on the phone and sounded a little breathless, but that's not entirely unexpected when you're trying to talk on the phone while also wrangling little kids. Beverly and her sister pretty much just firmed up plans for Betty to babysit the boys while Beverly went to the job interview, and then they hung up when one of Beverly's boys was getting out of the bath. Around 9 p.m., Betty's phone rang again, and this time it was Mark. He called to ask about a contractor for a bathroom flooring project he and Beverly had coming up. Mark mentioned on this call that Beverly had just run to the store to pick up some mini muffins for a school Halloween party for their son. After hanging up with Betty, one of the little boys woke up, so Mark went back into his bedroom with him to lie down so he would settle back down. And he ended up falling asleep, as one does. It wasn't until around 2.30 in the morning when Mark woke up and realized Beverly was not home and the car was still gone as well. Seeing as she had left five and a half hours before, this was massively alarming. Mark called the local hospital as well as the police concerned that Beverly had been in some sort of accident, but he found out that nothing like that had been reported. Mark then called Beverly's sister, Betty, again and let her know that Beverly was missing and that the RCMP was sending officers over to the house to get some information. So Betty's husband and son... Left to go drive the route Beverly would have taken from the store, which was a Safeway store in Selkirk, back to her home, which was roughly a 15-minute drive. Betty, in the meantime, headed straight to the house to help watch the boys who were asleep so that Mark could talk to the police or go out searching as well, whatever needed to be done. By the time the RCMP arrived at the house to take the report, the family had covered that route from the store to the house, and no one spotted Beverly or her car. Mark told the police that after he and Beverly had put the boys to bed, he settled in to watch a baseball game. Beverly decided to go to the Safeway to finish up some shopping that she hadn't gotten done earlier in the day when she did also go to the store, and this shopping trip apparently included those mini muffins. Mark said that Beverly left wearing a pink sweatshirt, a jean jacket, and jeans. Mark mentioned falling asleep with the sun and then realized Beverly was missing so many hours later. The RCMP officers asked all those usual questions about Beverly's mood when she left, how their relationship was, their finances, Anything along the lines of Beverly having a reason she may have left the house for the night. Mark insisted she had simply gone to the store and would have been back since she had a job interview in the morning. The officers also asked about the car, which Mark assured them was in good working order, though he wasn't sure how much gas was in the tank. Mark then gave the officers a photograph of Beverly, and they left to go to the Safeway to begin their own search. At this point, the family could do nothing but wait, and that's a very difficult part of this process. They had been in full force searching mode, and then suddenly their job is to just sit there and wait for the police. Betty sat down on the couch to wait while Mark said he was going outside to get some fresh air. According to Betty, he was out there for about 30 or 40 minutes before he headed back inside. With all the searching and the waiting, it was around 4 a.m. when an RCMP officer who was posted at the house got a phone call. Beverly and the car had been found near the Safeway. Though the officer would not give many details, he did tell Mark and the others at the house that night that Beverly was found deceased and it appeared to be a homicide. The family was not told anything else at that point, but even if they were, who knows if they would have heard it. The color drained from Mark's face and Betty had to help him into a chair before he looked like he was about to pass out. He broke down sobbing. A few hours later, in the morning hours, Mark called the RCMP for more information. All he knew was that his wife had been murdered, but no details. They gave him slightly more information, but still not the whole story. They said that the car was found parked at an abandoned gas station near the Safeway. Beverly had died from a blow to the head, and she was found in the back seat of the car. When they wouldn't tell him more than that, Mark asked if he should get a reward together for information, but they told him it was still too early for that and to hold off. Later that day, some officers did show up at the house to ask Mark for a formal statement. The boys were home at the time, so Mark gave the statement while sitting in the police car the kids were dealing with enough, they certainly did not need to hear any more about their mother's death. Mark was somewhat dazed at this point as he spoke with the officers, but like he had earlier that morning, he did cooperate with them fully. They wanted to know the whole of Beverly's movements that day and not just when she left the house for the last time. Mark said that Beverly had actually gone to the Safeway earlier that day. She had taken one of their boys with her and intended to do a big shop since it was a sales day. But the little boy started acting up and she left before she was done. She probably got about a quarter of her expected spending done that day. That's why she went back at 9 p.m. She needed to take advantage of the sales as well as get the mini muffins they needed. The RCMP had already pulled the security footage from the Safeway from that day. They did see Beverly and her son on that first trip, but the 9 p.m. trip, Beverly never made it into the store. Mark was then asked more about their marriage and if there was any tension, and he admitted that things had been rough immediately after the move to Manitoba. July, in particular, was pretty miserable, but he said things had gotten a lot better in the fall and they had been getting along as well as ever. Mark was also asked about a life insurance policy on Beverly's life, and he said that there had been one, but it was connected to her employer back in Regina, so it had elapsed two months previous. Obviously, with these questions, we know they're probing for a motive on Mark's end, but they didn't find much of one. They then asked Mark where he thought Beverly may have gone that night if she wasn't going to the Safeway, Or if she was, could she possibly have stopped somewhere? So maybe did she intend to get gas while she was out, hit the ATM, swing by her sister's house? Or a little darker, was she maybe meeting up with someone she was having an affair with? Mark said he had no idea about any intended stops along the way, and he never had any inkling Beverly had cheated in their entire relationship, and he just couldn't imagine that was what was going on. The following day, the RCMP showed up at Mark's house around 5 p.m. to ask him for a consent search. Mark did ask if they had a warrant, and that is a fair question. The truth was they were trying to get one, but it hadn't come through yet. They were worried about lost evidence if they waited to search. It was already almost 48 hours since Beverly last spoke to her sister, who was the last person outside of the home to have contact with her. If Mark was involved in something, that's a lot of time to get rid of evidence. After Mark was told no, they didn't have a warrant, they were asking permission, he then asked if he was a suspect, and he got the usual answer that they were working on eliminating people from the suspect list. Mark said he understood that he was the husband and that would put him at the top of this list, but he suggested they wait until after the funeral to search, since things were already overwhelming for the family. The police didn't want to wait because the funeral was still a couple of days away. They explained to Mark that they didn't want to wait and it was possible the person who killed Beverly had stalked her onto the property. Mark was reportedly quiet for a little bit while he thought it over. He took a few deep breaths and then he said he wanted to talk to a lawyer first. He also expressed concern that his kids would see the police in the house and that the RCMP would make a mess when they searched. Now, they assured him that they would search carefully. They would wait until the kids were taken out of the house before they searched. But Mark still said no. He said he hoped they would find the person responsible soon, and that would make a search of the house unnecessary. But no, he did not consent to the search. So the RCMP had no choice but to wait for the search warrant to come through. While they did have to wait on searching the property for a warrant, they didn't have to wait to search the car since it was the crime scene, and it had been processed soon after Beverly's body was discovered. Next to Beverly's body in the backseat was her purse, but her wallet had been stolen and along with it, her credit cards. Also missing was Beverly's diamond ring and also her watch. There was a lot of blood in the back seat, which would be expected given the way Beverly was killed. While the family was told it was a blow to the head, it was actually several blows to the head. Beverly was attacked with something like an axe or a hatchet, and she was hit 16 times. Beverly did try to fend off her attacker and received severe wounds to her hands, Which included severing fingers. But most of the blows made contact with her head. This was a particularly brutal and bloody attack, and at least some of the attack occurred while Beverly was in the back seat, as evidenced by blood spatter. It ended up taking an additional day for the RCMP to get the warrant to search the family's home and property. So it would have been three days since Beverly had been killed. Inside the house, nothing of note was found. In the attached garage, however, there was blood found. There were a few drops of blood. There was a small blood stain on the garage fridge, and also in the garage was a towel and two tissues that also had blood on them. While blood at a possible crime scene is definitely something worth noting, it was far less blood than you would expect if the primary attack happened in the garage. All of this was swabbed and sent to the lab. They also found in the attic space above the garage three yellow rubber gloves, one complete pair, and then a lone left-hand glove. This was relevant because of something else found On the search of the path from Safeway to the family home, a single yellow rubber glove, a right hand, was found in a ditch off the road. The glove had Beverly's blood on it. So they have a right-handed glove with Beverly's blood on it and then a lone left-handed one at the house up in an attic space. The three gloves in the attic were all the same design and style as the one found in the ditch, but there was no way to know if the left one in the garage and the right one from the ditch came from the same package, and it was, from my understanding, a common brand. Now, in the backyard, the yard was searched in a grid with the forensic officers on the ground crawling around, making sure they didn't miss anything. Many more drops of blood were found in the yard, as were clumps of hair and bone fragments. The hair was sent to the lab, and it was determined that it had been cut, almost surely by the weapon Beverly had been attacked with. So we have hair, bone, and blood in the yard. It looked like that was the primary place the attack happened. Beverly would have then been brought to the garage, put in the backseat of the car where she was struck again, and then driven to the gas station. But like with the small amount of blood in the garage, there wasn't nearly enough in the yard for this to be the definitive theory of the crime. It had rained between when Beverly went missing and the day they were allowed to search, but not enough to have washed away large amounts of blood. On the other hand, there was too much evidence in the yard to say nothing happened there. It just wasn't as much as would be expected. The conclusion drawn was that there must have been some cleanup done in the backyard. The RCMP opted to hold back this information of where Beverly was attacked from everyone outside of the investigation, and that included the family Beverly was attacked in her own yard on a two-acre rural property, and the person who attacked her, rather than leave her there, chose to move her body to another location. The circumstances definitely make it more likely that it was someone close to Beverly who was responsible for what happened. That doesn't necessarily mean Mark, but it did seem curious to the investigators that Mark was just inside the house, not that far away, yet didn't hear his wife being brutally attacked outside. We know she had enough time to put her hands up to defend herself, so she also would have had enough time to scream. Because Beverly had not made it to the store based on the CCTV footage and that there were no transactions, It wasn't that she was attacked when she came home, which was when Mark said he was asleep. She would have been attacked as she was leaving. And if that's what happened, it would have happened while Mark was watching baseball and or on the phone with Betty. So the RCMP ran some noise tests on the house. Basically, one person sat inside with the TV on and the other stood in the yard about where Beverly was likely attacked and yelled. The conclusion was that the yelling was heard clearly from inside. So why didn't Mark hear anything? That was just one question on their minds. Another had to do with the trip to the grocery store. That story didn't make sense to them after they pulled the security footage from the Safeway from earlier that day, and they pulled the transaction. Mark told them about this first trip to the Safeway, and... It was tied to the second trip since, according to Mark, Beverly left again because she hadn't finished her shopping the first time. So the investigators watched the video of Beverly walking through the store with her three-year-old. The entire store is not covered with cameras, so it's not a continuous following of Beverly. It was just about 18 minutes total that she was on screen, but they did have timestamps of her arrival and her departure. She was in the store for about 45 minutes total. A lot of the time when she was on a security camera, she was casually browsing. She went up and down the aisles, sometimes with her son in the cart, and sometimes he was walking next to her. Nothing really stood out on this recording. Beverly didn't seem rushed, like she was trying to get a huge shopping trip done. And while they didn't see her and her son the whole time, What they could see was a three-year-old acting very normally. The only thing he did at one point was walk over to a candy display, and then he walked back to Beverly. That said, this was not an audio recording. They can't rule out that the boy started whining or that Beverly just saw the warning signs of him reaching his limit and decided to leave early before they hit that point. So while the CCTV doesn't necessarily back up Mark's story, it also doesn't entirely discount it. What really stood out, though, to investigators was the amount she spent. Mark said Beverly planned to spend hundreds of dollars on groceries that day and still had quite the list to complete. But pulling up Beverly's previous transactions as logged by her Safeway loyalty frequent shopper card, they found that she never spent that much. Usually, she spent under $100 per trip with an average of $75. On this day, the day of Beverly's murder, she actually spent 108 which is a bit more than usual. And she was in the store for 45 minutes, spending a lot of the time just browsing. Beverly certainly didn't shop like someone who had a long list and a three-year-old in tow. So to the investigators, the story that she was heading to the store at 9 p.m. after already spending $100 on groceries that day just didn't make sense. The suspicion at this point was solidly on mark, and the RCMP began following him to see what he did and how he acted when he didn't think he was being watched, But nothing in Mark's behavior stood out as unusual or suspicious for a grieving widower. He was seen dancing with his kids in a parking lot at one point, but that's also the sort of thing a dad does to try to get his kids through losing their mom, giving them a moment of normalcy. The RCMP even followed Mark to Saskatchewan when he and the rest of the family traveled there for Beverly's funeral and again They saw nothing out of the ordinary. Because of the nature of the murder and Mark's high-profile job, the media was also at the funeral trying to get photographs of Mark and the boys. Mark tried to keep himself, and especially his boys, away from any media that was crossing the line and violating their privacy while they were grieving. The interest in this case was hard for the newspapers to keep up with at first Because the details being released by the RCMP were just not enough to meet the demand. They were only releasing the sparsest of details at first, holding back a lot in an attempt to preserve the integrity of the investigation. But eventually, the RCMP did turn to the media to appeal for more information, and largely due to public interest in the case, it worked. A woman contacted the police to say she was at the Red River on the night Beverly was murdered. This river is near the Safeway. She said she heard a splash that sounded like someone threw a baseball into the water. Though she did see a car drive away at the time, she didn't see it well enough to give a description. This seems like a very vague tip, but it turned out to be an accurate one. Shortly after this tip came in, a man who was walking along the shore looking for discarded fishing gear or something found a wallet that had washed up. It was mostly empty except for $10 and a photograph of Beverly and her two boys. Because of the media coverage, he knew exactly who she was based on the picture and reached out to the authorities. Soon after this, another man found a gold watch in the same area and it was the watch stolen from Beverly. Divers went into the river to search for more evidence, like maybe a murder weapon or possibly Beverly's diamond ring, which was also stolen, but nothing more was found. With the river being established as a key location, more tips came in about a person with a large build riding a bicycle in the area of the Safeway and the river. More than one person reported this, and they were all specific that the person riding the bicycle was quite large. Mark Stobie did own a bicycle, and he was also a large man, weighing around 280 pounds at the time. This tip was made public on November 27, 2000, when the RCMP put out a press release about it. They asked for anyone who saw someone on a bicycle in the area to come forward, though they didn't limit the requests to just this. They also asked for any information on someone trying to hitchhike or maybe even just someone out walking. Whoever the killer was, they had to get away from where they dumped the car. Mark did remain under surveillance during this time, so the RCMP decided to set a little trap. They set up a wiretap, and then they put some pressure on Mark, hoping he would say something that would incriminate himself or give them a new lead, a tip, or lead them to some evidence. So with the wiretap in place, the RCMP told the family one of the things they had held back, and that was that they believed Beverly was killed on the property. Mark did what they expected him to do, and he called someone to talk it through. He called Betty, Beverly's sister. On this call, Mark was unusually at a loss for words, With lots of heavy sighs and pausing, as a communications expert, he always seemed to know what to say, but not this time. Betty brought up the backyard and how the police had been focusing there when they searched, and Mark sighed and cursed. Betty kept talking about it, and Mark didn't have much more of a response other than more sighing and more swearing. Betty said that at least this information was one less thing for them to wonder about, since they had been told so little of what had happened to Beverly. And then she commented that Mark had actually already believed this to be the case, meaning he had previously said he thought Beverly was murdered in the yard. Mark said on this call that the reason he thought that, the reason he said that, was because during the search, the investigators had put tarps all over the yard It looked like they were doing more than a basic look at the property and possibly had found something. Essentially, Mark used context clues to come to this conclusion. And this appears to be the most incriminating thing they got listening in on Mark's conversations. Mark knew a piece of information about the case before the police released it. But Mark explained how he came to that conclusion. He just paid attention This was very underwhelming as far as getting any admissions out of Mark. While waiting on more tips to come in, hopefully a case-breaking tip at this point, the forensic evidence was coming back from the lab. So the bone fragments in the yard did come back as a match to Beverly, as did a lot of the blood evidence, both in the yard and in the garage. But a male profile was found mixed with Beverly's blood on the garage fridge. The blood on the tissues and the towel in the garage also had that same male profile. However, they swabbed the purse that was found in the car and they found a second male profile on the straps and the zipper. So five months into the investigation in April 2001, the RCMP showed up on Mark's doorstep. They told him they knew how Beverly died and it was a matter of time before they knew who And why. Then they showed him a warrant they had for a blood sample. They told him they were going to test his DNA against the evidence from the crime scene. Mark accepted the warrant and he didn't resist giving blood. He didn't ask to call an attorney or anything. He just seemed completely calm about it. He even made a joke about the person taking the sample, questioning if they were properly trained. Mark did use this opportunity to tell the RCMP that they had a neighbor who had started avoiding him after Beverly's murder. This guy sold bicycles, and when Mark tried to buy one for his son, the neighbor gave him a cold shoulder. Mark was open to the possibility that the man thought Mark was a murderer, and that's why he didn't want much of anything to do with him. But the interaction still stood out to him as odd, and he wanted the RCMP to know about it. It's not clear how much follow-up was done on this lead specifically. This conversation that happened in April 2001 was a lengthy one, and based on the comments the lead investigator made, he definitely sounded like he was trying to put the pressure on Mark, letting him know that they were going to dig and dig for evidence until they figured out what happened. If the goal is, as I suspect, and it was to rattle Mark into showing a guilty conscience, into being anxious or anything like that, it didn't work. After Mark gave the blood sample, it was sent to the lab and it was compared against the two male DNA profiles. Mark was a match to the blood from the garage. That's the blood on the towel, the tissues, and the very small amount that was mixed with Beverly's, on the garage fridge. The DNA from the straps and the zipper of the purse did not match Mark or his and Beverly's sons. So here's the thing. People's DNA will be in their homes. Their blood will be in their homes, particularly small amounts like was found in the garage. This is hardly a slam dunk. And Mark continued to insist on his innocence, and he did something a lot of suspects do not do, even when they are innocent. He kept working with the RCMP. He kept cooperating. At this point, the police have the evidence they have. Without more leads or more forensic evidence, this was their case. There was a concern about a possible conflict of interest when it came to the crown prosecutor in Manitoba due to Mark's government job. Mark worked closely with the premier of Manitoba. That's the provincial prime minister, similar to a state governor here in the U.S. To avoid even the appearance of Mark getting special treatment due to his position, a prosecutor from Alberta was called in to look over the case and see what the next steps were. After looking it over, it was decided there just was not enough to charge Mark or anyone else. The evidence against Mark was incredibly circumstantial, like how much Beverly usually spent while shopping, and the forensic evidence was slim and easily defended. And when we're talking about Mark's blood being found at the scene, even mixed with Beverly's in one spot... The responding officers admitted they didn't see any cuts or scratches on Mark. They didn't see a source for him bleeding that night, and they certainly couldn't date the blood. No charges were put forward, and the investigation slowed considerably at this point. In 2005, which was nearly five years after Beverly's murder, the RCMP cold case unit took over the file At that point, the majority of the evidence we've talked about was not public. And there was a general public assumption that Mark had been eliminated as a suspect. That was until the Winnipeg Free Press went to court to get access to the records. Canada has its own Freedom of Information Act, which is called the Access to Information Act, When you request a document from the government, they have to turn it over in a timely manner, only charge reasonable costs, and if they don't want to turn it over, they have to have a reason. Things like national security or protecting the integrity of an investigation are pretty typical reasons. I don't know the exact appeals process in Manitoba if your request was denied and you think it should have been approved. Here in the U.S., Every state has an appeals process, usually to the attorney general of the state. But if it's still denied after that, you can go to court and have a judge decide. And we know that the final step is the same in Manitoba because that's exactly what the Winnipeg Free Press did. They went to court and were successful. Some documents, including search warrants, were released. And the public learned for the first time that Mark was the main suspect from pretty much day one until day 2,190, which is where they were at this point, six years after Beverly Robotham's murder. The investigation had been extensive. It was later reported that the police followed up on 240 tips, interviewed around 400 people, Listened in on nearly a thousand phone calls, and over the course of the investigation, 120 officers had some role in it. Mark's attorney, though, said that this investigation still wasn't enough. It was a case of tunnel vision, and other persons of interest were not pursued. At this point, Mark had taken the boys back to Saskatchewan for a new job, but he was still eager to do whatever he could do to help the investigation. Until there was something he could help with, he was going to focus on raising his sons. The case then dropped largely out of the media spotlight again until the RCMP made a few hints in 2008 that there was a large development in the case. And then in May 2008, they announced the arrest of Mark Stobie for second-degree murder. After two months of pretrial detention, Mark was released on bail pending trial. At the time of his arrest, Mark's attorney said they didn't know the arrest was coming, and they also had not been told what changed that allowed for an arrest at this point. What was the evidence they discovered seven and a half years later, that they didn't have the first time the case was turned down for prosecution? That is a good question to ask, and if you were hoping for some bombshell, I hate to be the destroyer of your dreams. The case they took to court was essentially the same one they would have had years earlier. As for why it was delayed, that information wasn't released until after the trial. Remember how, because of Mark's high-profile government job, the Manitoba Justice Department reached out to that prosecutor in Alberta? Well, they didn't stop there. They took it to another prosecutor, and then another, and then another. They all said the evidence just was not there to charge Mark. They then took the case to a fifth prosecutor, out in British Columbia, who disagreed with the Crown Prosecutors' Numbers 1 through 4 and recommended a second-degree murder charge. So four prosecutors say the case isn't enough, and a fifth says, sure, go ahead. So they went ahead. It took another three years for this trial to happen. It began in January 2012. It lasted for eight weeks and heard from 80 witnesses. The interesting thing to me in this court case was how the prosecution's argument was structured. They took all these bits of evidence they had from all over, they came up with a theory of what happened, and then they systematically had witnesses walk through each piece of the puzzle trying to get it all to fit. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you their theory of how the crime happened, and then we'll break it down and get into the evidence presented to the jury to support it. So the theory of what happened that night, according to the Crown, was that the couple began arguing out in the backyard. Beverly had been unhappy and the pair had grown apart. Mark's temper flared as they fought, and he grabbed a nearby hatchet and attacked Beverly. He then put her body into the car, where he hit her again. Next, Mark took his bicycle and put it in the trunk of the car. Leaving his boys home sleeping, Mark drove to the gas station to dump the car. But first, he took Beverly's wallet, ring, and watch to stage a robbery as the motive. He left the doors open and the keys in the ignition. Then he rode the bike home eight and a half miles or 14 kilometers, stopping at some point to throw the items into the river. The ring was never found, but that would be easy to lose in moving water. At some point in this, either before he left with Beverly's body or after, Mark called Betty and asked about the flooring thing and just so happened to slip it in there that Beverly had left for the store. This was to set up what would be his cover story later. Then, instead of falling asleep with his son, like he said, Mark cleaned up as much of the scene as he could, particularly in the garage, before he called the police and then called Betty again at 2.30 in the morning. After the searches and the RCMP coming, Betty sat on the couch while Mark went outside into the yard alone for 30 to 40 minutes. This time, according to the Crown, was used to hose down the backyard. The Crown put the murder as happening around 9 p.m., the same time Mark said Beverly left for the store. This was based on the time the boys were put to bed, as well as the mother of a young girl testifying that they were doing some fundraising that night in the neighborhood, and her daughter had sold Mark and Beverly chocolates at 8.45 p.m. Mark was outside raking leaves at the time, apparently in the dark, I guess, and Beverly had been inside, but she came out to give them cash for the chocolates. The Crown believes this was the last sighting of Beverly alive, and the argument began shortly after this. The prosecution called literally dozens of witnesses to try to prove all of these elements from the marital strife to the cleanup to the bicycle being the getaway vehicle to all of it. So to start, they put witnesses on the stand to prove that Beverly and Mark were having marital discord. But this testimony, which we've already covered, was mostly about stress around the move. People also testified that Beverly was doing better in the fall and less stressed. They testified The couple was getting along, at least in public, and appeared to be affectionate. In fact, no one had seen or heard anything about the couple having arguments, and a lot of what Beverly said she was angry about was very situational. The Crown then moved on to show the jury the brutality of the crime. They showed large photos of Beverly's skull at the trial. The family had not heard all of the details of what happened to her before this, and it was about as bad as you can imagine. 16 blows. She knew at least some of them were coming because she tried to protect herself. The point was to show that this was a rage killing. Someone had to have been very angry with Beverly, and who else would have gotten that filled with rage other than her husband? The next thing the prosecution tried to dismantle was Mark's story about being home. He claimed he was watching TV, but they had those scream tests showing that he should have heard the attack in the yard. The former owner of the house said that the neighborhood was very quiet. A woman screaming at night would have been heard inside the house. But on the other hand, they also had two neighbors testify they didn't hear anything at their homes either. Though the houses weren't close, if the area was so quiet at night wouldn't they have heard something? Even if it was Mark who attacked Beverly, wouldn't they have heard her scream? Now, I offer a third option here, and that is the chance, no matter how unlikely it seems to us, that Beverly didn't scream or didn't scream that loudly. The RCMP officers also testified that the opening of the garage door was clearly heard from inside the house. But again, if Mark was telling the truth and expected Beverly to leave for the store, he would have heard the garage door and just assumed it was her. This was hardly stunning evidence unless I completely missed the point they were trying to make, which is always possible. Now, a side note on the former owner of the house who testified, he was a doctor, who worked at an abortion clinic in the 1990s. He bought the house in 1998 and only lived there for about two years before he sold it to Beverly and Mark. He did testify at the trial that he received anonymous threats due to his work at the clinic. But the threats he received were at a place he lived in before the log home, and he hadn't received any while he was living there and none since having sold it to Mark and Beverly. So I can see why the defense asked about this and put out the idea That this could have been someone who was anti-abortion, who was there to attack the doctor, and instead they found Beverly. But there was little to no evidence to support it. Okay, so next up in the Crown's story was the murder weapon. It was believed to be a hatchet, and a hatchet was not found. Multiple witnesses who had been at the house prior to the murder testified that there was a hatchet on the property. Two of them saw it in the yard. This hatchet, when the RCMP searched the house and property, was nowhere to be found. So it's very likely the hatchet that was there was the murder weapon. But of course, that just means someone else could have grabbed it just as easily as Mark could have, since it was out in the yard. It's another piece of evidence, like the lack of screaming, that could go either way. So the next part of the story the Crown had to prove was that Mark drove the car and dumped it at the gas station. There was someone else riding a bicycle that time of night, and he said he saw a car parked at the gas station with the headlights on. The person in the front driver's seat was a large man who looked like he was slumped over looking for something. The man was asked who he saw in the car, and he pointed at Mark. Now, this move was a surprise to literally everyone, since the man had never previously given a specific description of the man. He hadn't even come forward until four years after the murder because he didn't realize what he saw may have been relevant. So four years after the murder, he only had vague information on the appearance of a man, but 11 years later, he suddenly can point him out in a courtroom. A memory getting better at trial is never a good thing. The defense did cross-examine the man, and he admitted he wasn't wearing his glasses that night, and what he saw was more of a silhouette of a man. So he saw the outline of a large man. Now, in a large part due to this testimony, the judge did caution the jury not to rely too heavily on eyewitness testimony, particularly after so much time had passed and memories had changed. Now, the next point on the Crown's theory was that Mark rode his bike home and they had several witnesses who saw a very large man riding a bike in the area. The man was large enough that his size is why he stood out. But it didn't look like this was a man who was out for exercise because he was dressed in a three-quarter length coat rather than standard reflective gear cyclists normally wear at night. But none of the witnesses could say for sure they saw Mark. And the times and the places witnesses said they saw this cyclist just don't line up. Like one witness who said they saw this person riding at 845, which is the same time a girl and her mother sold Beverly and Mark chocolates in their yard. Then there's another witness who said they saw this cyclist at midnight and another at 2 a.m., The RCMP had sent an officer to do this trip on bike from the gas station to the house, and it took nearly 40 minutes. So even if we ignore the rest of the timeline issues, it wouldn't have been the same person at 8.45 and 2 a.m., even if you assume Mark may have ridden slower than the officer. All of these sightings could not have been Mark. The family did have two bicycles at the house that Mark could have ridden, and they were looked over for any signs they had been in the trunk. Dings, scratches, paint transfer, carpet fibers, whatever. They couldn't find any proof of this, but even if they did, so what? All it tells us is that someone in the house put their bicycle in the family car. That's hardly definitive proof, even if they found the evidence, which they didn't. So next up is the cleanup. The RCMP blood spatter expert testified that there were signs of a cleanup and the person did a good job. And if this was a random killing, why would someone go to that trouble? They also had Beverly's niece testify that the day after the murder, she was walking across the yard and noticed that there was a patch of grass that was wet while the rest of the yard was not. So the theory was that was the area that Mark had hosed down. The DNA expert testified about the blood evidence. He testified it was Mark's blood. That's the evidence. They can't say when it got there or how it got there, and there's no evidence Mark was injured that night. As for the blood on the fridge in the garage that was mixed with Beverly's, the defense asked the expert if it was possible a mosquito bit Mark and Beverly and then was squished on the fridge, mixing their blood together. And I have to say that this sounded like the oddest defense possible, but I am a little bit overwhelmed by reading about Winnipeg's mosquito situation, so I'd really rather not think about it too much. And the DNA experts said it was theoretically possible, so I'm not going to argue with it. As for the DNA on the purse, it did come from an unknown male. The defense proposed that this was from a man trying to steal the purse, or steal the things out of it, particularly since there was DNA on the zipper. But for a robbery, it was a terrible one. Pretty much everything was tossed in the river. The stolen credit cards were never used. No one even attempted to use them. The ring was still missing, but it's possible that was also in the river. If someone was stealing jewelry, they would have kept the watch as well. The Crown did try to spin the lack of forensic evidence in their favor, that none of Beverly's blood was found on Mark or on his clothing or even inside the house. He would have had to come inside very carefully to avoid transferring blood. And though Mark allegedly left his own blood behind on a towel, tissue, and the fridge, he managed to not get any on Beverly or the car. So the Crown took this and said, well, this is proof of a nearly perfect murder and cover-up. But then they also said it happened without much planning, since the theory was that this was a spur-of-the-moment attack during an argument and not premeditated. That seems incredibly unlikely for the average person, but in what may be the weirdest compliment I've ever given on the show, there is no doubt that Mark Stoby would have the intelligence and quick thinking to pull off a murder cover-up like this. Most people would not. One of his co-workers even testified that Mark was a brilliant strategist. And while I do concede forensic countermeasures are not the same thing as political spin, the ability to quickly but methodically think through scenarios is really the same skill. Now, I'm not saying just because Mark could have done it, that means he did it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying we can't rule out a near-perfect cover-up just because the average Person wouldn't have been able to pull it off because Mark Stobey is just not an average person when we're talking intelligence. So, okay, that was the bulk of the prosecution's case. Now, the defense's case was simple. The investigators pulled out all the stops to prove Mark killed Beverly, and in the end, all they had were suspicions. They looked for evidence, they couldn't find it, but they took it to trial anyway. The defense themselves admitted Mark's story was suspicious but also said that's not enough to say Mark killed Beverly. Evidence, not suspicion, is what is needed for a guilty verdict. Mark did take the stand in his own defense. His entire career was in communication, so I think he's probably one of the only defendants who could get up there, assess his audience, and get his message across clearly and effectively. All lawyers wish they had witnesses skilled in communication like this. The direct testimony in the cross-examination was as exhaustive as can be, and the judge was tired of the crap. When on day five of the cross-examination, the prosecutor was told to simmer down. Now, the judge didn't phrase it exactly like that, but did warn the prosecutor that she was approaching abusive in her questioning at that point. Mark, of course, denied killing Beverly from the start. He went into more detail about what happened that night, and the Crown pointed out instances where he added details from his initial police statement, like how in his first statement, he said he dozed off watching TV and then later added that it was actually in his son's bed. In another statement, Mark said he spent the weekend doing chores around the yard, and now at trial, he listed out those chores, which included putting the hose away for the winter. That change was designed, according to the Crown, to make it sound less likely that he was out there hosing down the lawn. But Mark said these details were not given at first because he was in shock and he was focused on finding his wife. And then when he found out she had been killed, he wanted to find her killer. He didn't mention putting away the hose because he didn't know it was relevant. Mark did break down on the stand when he was asked how he felt he heard that Beverly was killed in their backyard while he was just inside, and he said it confirmed his worst fears, that he should have been able to help her, but he was useless. The court even had to take a 15-minute break while he composed himself. Mark also denied from the stand that he and Beverly were having marital issues. When the Crown pointed out that the two had gone to marriage counseling in the past, Mark countered that that wasn't proof of marital issues— but proof of a couple who worked things out. Mark was also asked about the getaway bike, and he put it right out there on the record that he was frankly lazy, and the bike was given to him as an attempt to encourage him to exercise as his weight started climbing. But short of being able to ride eight miles, Mark had ridden that bike to the mailbox and back a handful of times. Other than that, he didn't ride it, and he wasn't the large man seen on a bicycle that night. Mark believed someone had come onto their property and attacked Beverly as she was getting ready to leave for the store. After Beverly's murder, Mark testified he added exterior security lights, and he bought a large dog. He had no idea who was out there, possibly stalking his family, and he wanted to protect them from a repeat attack. The Crown pushed back on this by pointing out the things Mark didn't do. He didn't change or add locks to the house. He didn't even cancel the stolen credit cards. The Crown said it's because he knew no one would use them because there had been no robbery. It was all staged. The cross-examination of Mark was long, extensive, and in my non-expert opinion, lost in the weeds. Every teeny bit of Mark's story was put under a microscope And the impression I get is they were hoping he would break down, which he did not. In their closing statement, the defense did not have a specific other suspect to point at. It appeared to them to be a random attack. Maybe it was someone on drugs. Maybe it was someone who was about to break into the house, but Beverly caught them in the act. The evidence for this was the unknown male DNA on the purse's zipper. Yeah, someone's DNA could get on the straps of the purse pretty easily, but the zipper? Why was a man touching the zipper except to go through the purse and take the wallet? To them, that evidence points to an unknown third person being involved. The Crown's closing statement pointed to Mark's intelligence and experience in staying calm that allowed him to carry out what they called a near-perfect murder. But they were sure that when the jury looked at the totality of the circumstances, they would see that Mark and only Mark committed this crime. The jury took the case, and after deliberating, they decided, no, there was not enough here. They found 54-year-old Mark Stoby not guilty for the murder of his wife, Beverly Robotham. The judge told Mark that he needed to make his sons his priority and honor Beverly's memory for them. And with that, it was over. Beverly's family, who believed Mark was guilty, were shocked that after 12 years of waiting for justice, they just were not going to get it. They didn't understand how the jury could believe some stranger just showed up in the yard, killed Beverly, and bothered cleaning up any of the scene before then driving off with Beverly's body. Why bother moving her body at all if the killer had no connection to the house? They hoped the Crown would appeal the verdict. In Canada, the prosecution can appeal an acquittal if there is a significant error in the law, something improper happened at trial that altered the outcome, like the judge making a bad call on what evidence or testimony would be allowed in or Maybe if the instructions to the jury had a major error or something like that. Beverly's sisters hoped there would be such grounds for an appeal, but the Crown went back through the trial and they announced they would not be filing an appeal because they had no grounds to. Justice for this strong, fun-loving sister and mother who had so much more life to live would just not come out of this trial. As for Mark, it wasn't exactly back to life as normal. He struggled to find employment as the cloud of suspicion continued to hang over him. The cost of the trial drained his financial resources, and he struggled for years afterwards to regain his footing. He and his children have lived largely private lives since the trial, though Mark recently published a book about the controversial Mr. Big Sting operations that occur in Canada. We've covered them on other episodes. Mark has continued to proclaim his innocence and has said that he too has had to accept that there will not be justice for his wife, for the mother of his children, for Beverly Robotham. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.